You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Last time we left Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins languishing in the brand new Old Stone Jail in Boston. Both had just been found guilty of piracy and officially dubbed enemies of the whole human race. Their crew got off the hook with a fine and some forced military service, but not those two. They had only a gallows to look forward to. Now, I don't know that King William III of England was a particularly poetic man, that he paid attention to things like symbolism and metaphor, nor do I think he was paying too much attention to this little piratical flare-up in New England. However, he did take one action that does strike me as symbolic. When the Royal Navy loses a ship, they tend to replace her. Not just build another ship to put in the lost vessel's place, but a real replacement. The same size and classification, the same number of guns, and even the same name. They didn't always do this with tiny sloops or with the flagship ships of the line. They either let them fall away into obscurity or gave them a large retirement ceremony. But your frigates and men of war and even lesser ships of the line they replaced. In part, it's symbolic. Our naval might shall never be diminished, that kind of thing, but more importantly, and practically, it made the record-keeping easier. Say they lose the pearl out of Plymouth. Well, they build a new pearl and send it to Plymouth. Same size, same guns, same name. Oftentimes, when possible, they liked to use parts of the old ship. Not raw materials, necessarily. A new Royal Navy ship was built to top-of-the-line standards. Literally, that's where the term comes from. But a mast, if it was in good shape, or if the ship had a figurehead that they could salvage, or a wheel. Perhaps the most ceremonial of all were the sails. 
salvaging a ship's sails was a sign of good fortune and continuity in the Navy. I'm sure, of course, that the tradition had nothing to do with sails being expensive and difficult to replace, especially back in the Middle Ages. But whenever possible, even if a ship had to be scuttled, they tried to save the sails. Usually they were sent back to England to be used on the new craft, but there was some ceremony there. In some cases, the king would give his blessing upon those new sails, as was the case with a little ship called the HMS Rose. The Rose was scuttled back in 1686 in Thomas Pound's battle with the pirate George Peterson. Now, they replaced the Sally Rose as soon as possible with a sloop of war, the Mary. But that was less of a ceremonial naval tradition and more the government of Boston realizing, oh crap, we need a ship here. They began to build a new HMS Rose although I don't think we could rightly call her the Sally Rose any longer. But of course, shipbuilding takes time. The newly built Royal Navy frigate HMS Rose was not completed until 1689. The king, King William, blessed her sails and sent her off to her port of call in Boston. Imagine the surprise Thomas Pound must have felt when he learned that his ride back to England had arrived and was none other than his old ship rebuilt. Again, I doubt that King William chose to twist the knife so poetically. The ship was completed, so send it out to do its duty and collect the pirates. It's just practicality, but it does strike me that the ship that Thomas Pound lost in a battle with a pirate would carry him home for his scheduled execution for piracy. This is episode 171, A Rose by Any Other Name. Thomas Pound is not an A-list pirate. I get that. I know he's not the most exciting figure in the story of piracy. His piratical career boils down to a couple of months off the coast of North America, capturing a few fishing ships and a couple of merchantmen. Bartholomew Roberts, he isn't. But there are some reasons that I chose to focus on him as much as I have. First, his piracy is well documented. That's always a plus around here. Second, there's the question of his motivation. I'm fascinated by the idea of a Jacobite pirate. Even if that's not accurate, it's a, it's a great idea. Third, of course, he's the first pirate of any real consequence from English North America. There were others, Dixie Bull and his ilk, and of course a number of West Indian pirates that sailed to North America, but those who sailed out of New England, Pound is the first of note. But that of course ties into number four. Thomas Pound is important to our story because of when he turned pirate. New England, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and Boston in particular, is about to develop Bay serious pirate problem. The sort of problem that we haven't seen since maybe 1682 in Saint-Domingue, or maybe even 1671 in Port Royal. New England is going to be, well, it's not, it's not the epicenter, but it's maybe the progenitor of the next great pirate plague. Thomas Pound's career, insignificant as it may have seemed, would prove to be auspicious of things to come. 
However, here in 1689, Pound and Thomas Hawkins waited in their cells. They stayed there in the old stone jail for three months after their trial. They did have visitors, a lot of visitors, in fact. They had a constant stream of well-wishers and family members, and then there were those that were petitioning the government for clemency. There was a coalition of Boston notables that argued for Thomas Pound. They were led by a, quote, Mr. Epaphorus Shrimpton and sundry women of quality. Mr. Shrimpton is not of any real note to our story, but remember that name, Shrimpton. We'll be looking at one of his relatives in great detail in the near future. The sundry women of quality, though, are of note. Sadly, we don't have many of their names. They were recorded at the time, and that is important, but only some of the names survive in the historic record. We have better records of those who came to plead for the life of Thomas Hawkins. That is an impressive list. Those were also women of quality there in Boston, which is to say they were of the highest class that Massachusetts had to offer, and while Boston might not be, you know, London by a long shot, it was the premier city in the colonies. These women that came to argue on behalf of Thomas Hawkins were very well connected. And the list is long, but let's just look, for example, at his sisters. First, we have his eldest sister. And sadly, we lack her name, but we do know her husband's name. We could, in an old and outdated naming convention that I by no means agree with, but we could call her Mrs. John Richards. John Richards was in our story last time, though I didn't mention him by name. He was at the trial of the pirates back in January, sitting on a dais, in fact, in the middle of a dais between two other judges in the trial. John Richards, the husband of Thomas Hawkins' eldest sister, was the magistrate presiding over the trial. And later on, when John Richards died, that sister would go on to marry the lawyer who led the defense of the pirates. And then we have Thomas Hawkins' second sister. She was married to the reverend of the First Anglican Church of Boston. And then the third sister, finally, we have her name, was Hannah Hawkins. She would go on to marry Elisha Hutchinson, who was, and I'm not joking here, another of the judges who sat on that dais in the trial. The fourth sister, the youngest of the Hawkins clan, was Abigail Hawkins. At the time of the trial, she was too young to marry, but she did go with her sisters to plead for the life of her older brother. Her tears do seem to have moved the legal authorities there in Boston, because a few years later, Abigail Hawkins would marry the Honorable John Foster. Now, he was not a judge in the trial of the pirates. He was the boss of the judges in the trial of the pirates. Boston was a small town. Honestly, I don't quite believe that series of coincidences, but that is what the record tells us. And those sisters were the most prominent of the sundry women of quality who came to argue for Thomas Hawkins, but they were far from the last. Well-connected women from all around Massachusetts arrived in Boston to argue for clemency. George Francis Dow writes in Pirates of the New England Coast, 
Quote, it seems strange that one so well connected should have surreptitiously gone privateering or, in plainer language, have engaged in piracy. End quote. As it happens, I agree with that, but it is a pattern that we have seen and will continue to see. Henry Morgan, for example, would go on to be a governor, and just wait until we get to Captain Kidd and Thomas, too. All of those petitions, though, were recorded. They were written down. The high station of the ladies involved was noted. Alongside that were their husbands' positions of power and influence. I think that, even though I'm sure that the tears they cried were honest, I think that this show of compassion was as carefully calculated as those of the women at the trial. These women were begging for clemency, but it was... It was more than that. It was a campaign to save Thomas Hawkins' life, as we can see in the studiously kept records, or what remains of them. Finally, though, on the 20th of April, 1690, the Rose arrived in Boston. The two condemned were hauled aboard. Maybe the three condemned. William Coward's fate is not recorded, at least not that I've seen. He was sentenced to death at the trial, but that's the last I've seen of him. A couple of days later, the Rose set sail with the two pirates on board, but she put into port in Maine. The Rose would not be sailing back to England alone. She was to be the flagship in a convoy. Thomas Hawkins and Thomas Pound had to wait a full month before they finally set sail for England. The two ships that would accompany her were relatively small. One was a merchantman with only two guns on board, the other, slightly more powerful, a sloop with eight guns. Still, it was clear the Rose was to be the power in their convoy. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. 
and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Their little fleet put in one last time at Cape Sable Island. Cape Sable is a tiny little piece of land at the southernmost tip of Nova Scotia, Canada. At the time, this was English territory. They had a claim that went back decades on the island. Of course, it was kind of also French territory, as the French had a claim that went back a few years further. Which I'm sure won't be a problem in a time when the French are currently engaged in a global conflict against the English and the Dutch, and were of course so very fond of handing out letters of mark to their sailors. Oh no, this is going to be easy. Captain John George of the HMS Rose was a naval captain of some standing, though. He was fully aware that this was a time of war. Now, sailing the Rose into Cape Sable was not an act of aggression. This was English territory, but it was a calculated act of war. This is an old tactic. You sail your shiny new frigate into contested waters in a time of war for the purpose of flying the flag to show your enemies who you are and that you are not someone to mess with. Of course, French privateers were not wont to agree with that particular assessment. On the 24th of April, 1690, the Rose, anchored just off Cape Sable, was approached by an impressively armed ship. The English would have considered her a man-of-war of 30 guns. That ship was flying English colors, though, so Captain George hailed her. The traditional hail was, from whence are ye come? Now one would expect to hear a port of call in return. Boston or Salem, maybe. Maybe Jamestown. Pirates, at the height of the Golden Age, were known to respond from the sea. This ship, though, upon being hailed, replied, We will tell you by and by. Then, almost immediately, they raised French colors and opened fire. She opened up with a full 15-gun broadside and then followed that up while the English were rushing to prepare their own volley with, quote, not less than 300 small arms, end quote. The crew of the Rose was hit hard. But, in the first mate's words, they, quote, returned fire to good purpose. The sloop of war, the other ship with any reasonable firepower in their little armada, sailed around to try to flank the Frenchmen. They hoped to trap the French vessel in a crossfire, but she was a swift sailor and she avoided both of them. The geography of the battle looked something like this. The Frenchmen in the rows were facing opposite directions, but side by side, less than, quote, half a musket shot apart. Then that English sloop of war sailed around to the French larboard, but the privateers opened up their sail and slipped just out of range, just to the aft of the rose. This left the heavy guns on both English vessels facing each other, rather than the French pirate they hoped to have trapped in the middle. Now the Frenchman was not quite perpendicular to the rose. They didn't quite cross the T. They were angled, but they had their guns trained firmly on the rose's rear. It was there, situated in that position, a situation that favored the French very heavily, 
that the wind died. All three ships were caught in a calm, unable to maneuver. The French had their guns aimed at the rows, with the English only able to respond with musket fire. This situation lasted for over an hour, and it was brutal for the English. They took heavy losses. Captain John George fell when he was hit by a mix of shrapnel and grape shot. He bled to death there on the deck. His crew would have removed him, but they were too busy fighting for their lives. His lieutenant, the first mate, took up command of the Rose, but he made an executive decision, what was probably the most prudent move imaginable in this situation. He ordered Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins freed, and then ordered his men for the duration of the battle to follow Thomas Pound's commands. Yes, he was a pirate, but he was also a Royal Navy captain, more experienced than the first mate, and previously the commander of the Rose, in her last iteration. Plus, he, better than any other Englishman present, knew how to fight pirates. It was, for many years, his job. The tide of battle turned once Captain Pound took command. He barked out orders, and the Rose began to drift into a much more tenable position. Her superior firepower were finally locked on the French, and they opened fire with everything. There's a letter written after the battle that describes this moment perfectly. It reads, quote, The Rose had her mizzen shot down, her ensign, her sails and rigging much torn. But we so bored the Frenchman's sides that his ports were made two or three into one. We lay on his quarter, I mean facing the rear, the raised deck of the ship with the wheel on it. We lay on his quarter. We fired so that he was forced to cut down and cast into the sea. We saw his captain and lieutenant fall. His tops were full of grenadiers and fusees, which we saw fall like pigeons. And multitudes of his men lay slaughtered on his deck. End quote. Now that is how you write about a sea battle. This author knew how to paint a picture, a violent one, but vivid. Multitudes lay slaughtered on his deck. The French privateer was forced to turn and run when he says they cut down and cast into the sea. Today was an English victory, but the English had suffered heavy losses. Their captain was dead, as were many in the crew, including, that same letter tells us, Thomas Hawkins, the pirate. But Thomas Pound was very much alive, and he was at this moment in command of the royal frigate Rose. What might he do with a ship like that under his command? He turned her back over to the first mate. These navymen weren't going to follow him into piracy. But they did respect his actions during the battle. Doing his duty, fighting the French, it was the right thing to do. And it saved their lives. After the repairs were done and they collected some wood and water, the HMS Rose sailed on and arrived in England in late June 1690. At the writing of this episode, that is almost 330 years ago to a day. Thomas Pound was officially bound for the hangman's noose. That was the verdict of the court there in Boston. But that wasn't going to be his fate, not any longer. We don't know when or how the order for his execution was rescinded, 
There's no official record of it. There's no relation of his meeting with the king like King James and Henry Morgan. He wasn't that important. But Thomas Pound was not to be executed. It's almost like his high crimes on the high seas never took place. Instead, the first word we have of Thomas Pound after arriving in England comes from a letter that he sat down and penned. The letter was to his old patron, Edmund Andros, the one-time governor of the province of New England. The tone of the letter is friendly. It suggests to me that Thomas Pound is establishing his position as no longer a criminal of the highest order, no longer an enemy of the whole human race, someone who is almost an equal of Edmund Andros, who is, of course, no longer one of the most powerful men in the Americas. The letter doesn't mention his legal troubles or the pardon, but the absence makes it clear that they're no longer a concern. Instead, though, it goes into great detail about their battle at sea. It gives us what might be the best first-hand account of a sea battle that we have seen thus far on this show. Thomas Pound himself penned the words, Multitudes lay slaughtered on his decks. That's what you get when you have a ship's captain, a literate ship's captain, but the kind of person who would turn to piracy, that's the writing you get. Sailors falling from the rigging like pigeons and multitudes laying slaughtered on the deck. That's evocative language. And I mean, I love William Dampier and Alexander Exquimlin. I'm thankful to their writings forever. And I love doctors too. I'm glad that they're here to keep us alive. But the only literate guy on most pirate vessels usually seems to have been the surgeon. The one person on board who was certain not to take part in the fighting because they were needed, hale and healthy, to tend to those who had been. In Dampier's case, he can spend pages talking about penguins, but he will barely touch the surface of a sea battle. His writings are excellent and usually probably pretty accurate, but they brush over the good stuff. Pound, though, he knew the value of drama. As a ship's captain, he knew how to motivate his men, and as a pirate, he knew how to instill fear. That makes for an excellent pirate captain. And let's be clear here. The ability to instill drama means a slight bit of misinformation, dishonesty even. And that's what was happening here. There were not 300 small arms on board that French privateer. That is an insane number. Even if every man on board had two pistols, one in each hand, it still probably wouldn't even add up to 300 small arms. There were maybe 100, maybe 120 pirates aboard that vessel. The 30 guns on board? Possible, but unlikely, especially in the North American colonies. It was a time of war, so more likely than it would have been a year or two earlier, but still probably not the case. How about that false flag trick where the French flew the English flag until hailed only to reply, we will tell you by and by? Possible, that did happen. Pirates and privateers were known to do so. Whether it did or not, though, 
I don't care whether the ship actually had 30 guns or more. I don't care. Maybe there were 300 small arms on board. What I want in this story is a wall of red-hot lead shot erupting from a sea of smoke and fire. That's the image that Thomas Pound evokes, and I'm in love with it. This is the tale of an adventurer, a man who led naval missions, who led pirate raids, and who knew how to tell a good story. But his time in England was Thomas Pound's return to reality. He was not to be punished. In fact, he was to be awarded. In 1691, he would publish an atlas called A New Map of New England. It wasn't terribly accurate, but it was used during the war. It sold pretty well, and it made him a decent amount of money. But his greatest reward, at least what I suspect was his most personally fulfilling reward, came in August 1690, about a month after arriving in England. Thomas Pound was handed papers by a Royal Navy official reinstating him as a captain in the King's Navy. And the captain of not just any old Navy ship. The HMS Rose lost her captain in a battle with pirates. And Thomas Pound, who had lost the original Sally Rose, rose to the task. He reclaimed his honor by taking command and winning that battle. Thomas Pound was made captain of a new and improved HMS Rose. But that wouldn't do. It was officially in all the records HMS Rose. But Pound made it clear, as he prepared to set sail from England back to Boston, that this was to be the new Sally Rose. And that's where we're going to leave Thomas Pound. He would go on to have a distinguished naval career sailing out of New England, but his days as a pirate were done. He did have a lot of work to do. There was a war on, after all. We may peek in on him from time to time. In fact, he had some of his own messes to clean up, most especially in Falmouth, Maine. But Pound will no longer be the protagonist of our story. As a captain in the Royal Navy off the coast of New England in the early 1690s, Thomas Pound will become, to the pirates at least, quite the antagonist. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, Anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. Everybody who has donated through the website. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight. 